reversing Conway's law essentially means going the opposite direction, which is basically you kind of go, hey, I've set my business goals. Uh, from those business goals, I created my product architecture, right? And then you go, now let me build my organization that matches my product architecture. If you're a tech leader looking to learn today's best practices for leading high-functioning teams, you're in the right spot. In each episode, we learn from today's top tech leaders as they share their successes, their failures, and their lessons learned along the way. I'm Debbie Madden, and this is the Scaling Tech Podcast, your blueprint for scaling tech teams. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. I'm Debbie Madden, the host of the Scaling Tech Podcast. And today, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm talking with Krishna Bala about Conway's Law and breaking down dev team silos, which is so important now that we're hybrid and distributed. So, uh, hey, Krishna, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Debbie. Look forward to this. Uh, so before we jump in and talk about Conway's Law and silos, I do want to tell everyone uh, who doesn't know Krishna, he is currently the senior VP of engineering at a healthcare company, health tech company called Prosha, which is a company that is digitizing the 150-year-old practice of pathology. I did not know that pathology was 150 years old, so there's that. <laughs> in, in, in your role, he's leading the development of the enterprise pathology platform, which is used by leading life science organizations as a top diagnostic in laboratories, which is like really, I mean, we couldn't have a better mission-informed company on the podcast. So really, really excited to have you here. Um, and so you, you've got uh, 20 years, more than 20 years of experience in software development, data engineering, and AI machine learning, and also a very successful entrepreneur with several exits, um, IPO, CTO, co-founder. So you've had quite, quite a career. Um, so uh, the topic, as I discussed, Briefly, we're talking about breaking down silos. So let's let's just start with uh, I want to we're going to talk about Connolly's law and what is it. But first, let's talk about why are silos bad? Because that's kind of the framing of the of break. We want to break them down, therefore we think they're bad. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> tell us about that. Absolutely. So I think uh, that being a very simple way is if your teams are siloed, they're not learning from each other. Mm. Right. So that's the first thing I would say. A derivative of that would be they're not learning from each other's mistakes. We all make mistakes, and in fact, we possibly learn more from mistakes and successes. Uh, we're not learning from each other. That that's the the second challenge I would say. The third one is if the team is doing if there are, you've got five teams or whatever number of teams you have three teams doesn't matter what the number is, and each one is doing the same task slightly differently. Which again, you will always get that slight amount of variation in those tasks. Now you created product versions that are slightly different from each other. That is also a maintenance and support uh, nightmare. So speaking of scalability, scaling your product, you're scaling your customer experience, scaling everything, right? It's not just uh, scaling the tech team, but the customer experience. That is going to be a hit a big hurdle if you've got siloed teams that have not learned from each other and are doing things you know, slightly differently um, for the same challenge, the same problem that they're trying to solve. So that's why silos are bad in a nutshell. Yeah, and the more teams, the the worse this problem becomes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've had in my past experience, you talked about, you know, a couple of decades of experience there. Small teams, large teams, the larger the team, the more the disconnect. Mm -hmm. and, and the worse off you are. So 
you start to look at the drift, it occurs slowly. And then over time, when you look back, you go, oh my God, how did, how are two teams relying on the same module, but doing this, you know, so very differently. And that's, that's the big challenge. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Exactly. But scale, it gets worse. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it. I've seen it myself. So I'm sure many listeners have as well. And so you and I had talked, you know, when we were getting ready for this conversation and you had shared that you believe the best way to break down these silos is by reversing Conway's law. So uh, I'm sure many people know what Conway's law is who listen to the Scaling Tech podcast, but Conway's law is the belief that whether subconsciously or not, businesses will create systems and solutions that closely mirror how they communicate internally. Um, and you can correct that definition. I, I it's, it's kind of a wonky definition I found online, but tell us what it, yeah, you could paraphrase what it means to you and then tell me why you believe that the best way to break down Conway's law is, I'm sorry, break down silos is by reversing Conway's law. So walk us through that because that's very interesting. Perfect. Uh, yeah, a good sort of thought process. Exactly. That's a good summary of Conway's law. It really comes down to human behavior. It comes down to what we prefer to do. Um, and Conway being a pretty astute computer scientist basically figured that solutions and systems essentially are following their organizational boundaries or their org charts, right? So to put it another way, to be more specific, if you have two or three uh, groups in your in your division and you have two or three products, each led by a different manager, over time what you find is that the products uh, built by each team are independent. Um, they, they lack common modules and common resources that are kind of building things in their own way because as humans, I think we're just comfortable staying in that hierarchy, staying in our own little system, works hard enough, challenging enough, and you basically say, okay, this is my box. I'm going to innovate within that box, right? You don't think about reaching across the aisle. That's kind of a natural tendency there. So Conway observed this and he basically said, um, if you don't kind of reverse this process, naturally you're going to get uh, independent products, independent siloed uh, outcomes, if you will. So reversing Conway's law essentially means going the opposite direction, which is basically you kind of go, hey, I've set my business goals. Uh, from those business goals, I created my product architecture, right? And then you go, now let me build my organization that matches my product architecture. So that would be the, ideally, that's what you would do. As a business manager, you'd sit down and you'd have those discussions. And as an engineering leader, you'd say, okay, I understand what the goal is now. And let me go off and now tune my engine to meet the, meet the needs of the business, if you will, or build my org chart really to, to match the needs of the product architecture. Interesting. Now, I'm assuming not everyone does it that way. <laughs> or what? not, and whether intentionally or not, life happens, you scale rapidly, and you're, you're, you're doing it in the reverse way, which results in those silos. Yeah, um, exactly. Been there, done that. So that is just learning from my own past sins. I've, I've done it the, the, the terrible way, learned from it, and then adapted. Eventually, yeah. Around. I mean, I've 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 spoken with many tech leaders who have really very little visibility into what's happening in another team that reports up into the same executive um, because those silos have existed for so long, for years and years, um, and so I've I've seen this play out, um, and so we're talking about breaking down silos. So let's talk about the positive um, outcome of doing that. So why, why do you think it's ideal to build common elements um, 
you know, to service those outcomes that can be reused? What good comes from those behaviors? So uh, from a business value perspective, from an outcomes perspective, just looking at it, you know, purely from that angle, if you take any enterprise-wide product, you take a product that's made for an enterprise for larger scale adoption, if you will, uh, it, you will quickly figure out that there are indeed common elements, right? There are common, common things that can be built and essentially built once and used multiple times. So the big, very simple business value is you build a common module once uh, and then all of your teams, your multiple teams can use it uh, multiple times over. That's one. The second one and the biggest one that eventually occurs as you scale and, and grow your company, grow your business uh, is maintainability. That's another huge one that comes out of this. Common teams tend to have focus on those common elements. They understand all the science, the details behind those common elements, tend to fix issues much quicker and tend to deliver a much higher quality product also. So the other thing you get out of this is maintainability, easier to support the systems and higher quality product by design. So right at the beginning, you'll get a high quality outcome. So those are the value propositions that I can think of that are you know, top of my mind now that come as a result of this. Yeah, and I think I think I'm um, I'm assuming that again, folks that are are listening to this conversation that are now kind of going through all the different teams they've been on and where there's been silos and where there's been more elements that are reused because in reality, it's never black and white. You know, even if you intend to have as many reusable elements, you might have some silos creeping in here and there. Um, so it's really good to kind of focus on why we want to bring this back and what the business outcomes are. Um, and, and so with that, I wanted, um, if you can, um, share with us anything that you're, you're willing to share about, like how you brought this approach to your current team. Um, because, you know, of all the experiences that you've had, like, I think it's really interesting to talk about how this is impacting you today. So, um, yeah, t tell me, tell me what's going on with your current team. So let's say starting with really the, the founders of Prosia, I think founders, uh, David Coleman and Nathan kind of sat together, they were you know, prescient to create a vision for a common enterprise digital pathology platform. So they kind of looked at this and said, you know what, we want to build a common platform for revolutionizing the way pathology is practiced. Uh, and we want to serve multiple markets, if you will. So that was the insight that the founding team had. And they basically said, we want to be able to launch our product and transform the way science gets done in the biopharma space, life sciences space. That's one area. Another one was, the way you know a diagnostics gets done uh, at clinical labs by pathologists, uh, by you know physicians. So how cancer is diagnosed? We want to transform the clinical diagnostic arena. That's the second area we want to market. We want to launch our product into. And third one is data. Um, essentially, these are sort of the three product lines we want to launch our product into. So when they brought me in, they basically said, Krishna, this is your mission. Essentially, I want you to scale out the products. You want to take this common platform. Our vision is for a common concentric platform for revolutionizing digital pathology. But we wanted to have a common base from which we can launch multiple products. So I looked at this and said, this is a perfect um, you know, execution of reversing Conway's law. This is exactly what we need to do. So I dug in a little bit, took me a little time to get you know, technical, understand the technical side of the business but also the domain. Uh, these are you know, folks from Johns Hopkins and UPIT who have done a lot of uh, work on the biopharma science of things. They understood the domain very well, biomarkers and research and in oncology. So they started to understand the language a bit about the space and those domains that they wanted to play in. And I started to, thought, to think uh, to myself, what are the common elements of a pathology platform? 
what is common to all of these platforms. And what is common is typically they all have a common image processing engine. Uh, they commonly have an API layer, some sort of a networking layer that needs to be highly performative because these images are big images. They're very large. They're gigapixel plus plus, you know, starting with, uh, with those kind of sizes there. Storage uh, is expensive because, again, you're storing big images, so you've got to be very sensitive to that. And then you've got to have a very workflow-oriented uh, layer to each of these markets. It's different. The workflow for a scientist in a, in a life sciences biopharma arena is very different from that of a diagnostic a physician or a lab manager sitting in a lab you know, with human tissue diagnosing cancer. And also the data groups that rely on this data to do biopharma research are also very different. So the, the, the front ends for each of these or the wrappers, if you will, around this platform are very different. So I asked myself, okay, how would I organize my team? So this was the reversing of Conway's law, which is to say, I understand the business vision. I, I understand now the product architecture. I have a good feeling for that. Now, how do I build my organization uh, to now achieve the goals of the, of the business, if you will? So what I did was I set up my teams to have a common core team. And the common core team was responsible for image processing. So I brought in experts that are just focused on that domain. They do nothing else. I brought in experts at API and networking. That's a whole different skill set. But again, put them in the core team. Uh, basically, these guys understand APIs, understand network performance. That's all they do. Uh, and then wizards at understanding backend storage and how to optimize all of that with tiering storage and, and all of that. So certainly put a core team together that would then, you know, work with all of these workflow-specific uh, teams for life sciences, for diagnostic clinical, and for data. So now these three teams, these three scrum teams that are customer-facing, that are really for those three markets, are relying on this common core team, right? So you've got uh, you know, domain-specific scrum teams, and you got the common core team feeding them. So that's kind of how I organized this team. And a little bit of a double-click, we also realized that, oh, we've got common UI elements between these teams. They can share the same UI. Branding-wise also, you know, you want to have concentric the same across these markets. So we spent some time on that and also decided, yeah, the UI can also be a part of the common core. So that's how we organized ourselves very deliberately. And, and do you do you recall about how long this took you to do? Because my, my, after you answer that, I want to know how did you handle all the change management with all these human beings now responsible? Not all of the human beings, but some maybe having different roles within this new organized way. So how long how long did it take you roughly? And then how did you handle all of the culture change that obviously had to come along with this? Correct. So this is kind of the NASCAR analogy where, you know, you're changing the tires as this thing is moving. So right, right. Pop stop, make some changes, you know, get it back running again, because obviously no startup can say it's stop business for nine right, months. Right. It's got this amazingly brilliant, you know, reversing Conway's nothing. No one's got the time for that. So the way we had to do it was I had to come up with a transition plan. And it was literally, you know, lifting and changing one thing at a time. So starting off with, you know, one piece, maybe image processing, started off with that. It was a nine-month-long process. Oh, okay. Uh, but we brought value to the business over that period. So every three months, we'd bring one transformation, uh, be able to show value. Did the second one, you know, pitch, oh, wow, this is very valuable. Let's do that now for the next next year. So we went in this, you know, in an evolutionary fashion. You don't have time to do a revolution here. So we evolu did an evolutionary change over nine months and then built up value for the business there. 
but that's a good question. And in fact, uh, Debbie, you brought up another big topic here, which is change management. Right. So I think the one of the, uh, so going leaning on my past mistakes, right? So as a 20, 25 years experience and some gray hair comes with that, some experience on how to do it well and how to do it badly. So in the past, uh, you know, I've done it, but I've said, oh, this is very intuitive. I know exactly this is the way to do it and I've done it. And then to my complete shock and surprise, no one's adopting it. There's a lot of pushback, a lot of resentment. People leave. I lost some of my talent. This time I did it very differently, which is I engaged the team fully eyes wide open in this change management. So I sat down with the teams and I kind of said, look, roles are going to change for each one of you, including myself, including the way I manage the teams. Uh, we had some open sessions. I had some closed door sessions, you know, with individuals, some of the team leads. So we kind of, you know, took this piece by piece. We were very deliberate about this. I engaged the teams. I took a lot of feedback. And I realized that some of what I might consider best practices from previous careers may not be valid here. This is a different environment. It's a startup moving super fast. Market adoption is skyrocketing. I obviously want to make changes uh, that ultimately show quick business value immediately, right? You know, there's a sense of immediacy, but also sensitive to the team's ability to adopt and absorb that change. Um, you right. can't also get ahead of your team. So I, I, this is, I think, the good thing was it was eyes wide open, brought the whole team into this. Um, and surprisingly, the team kind of loved that. They put their energy into it. I just wasn't sure. I mean, this is the, I had to bring everybody into the tent, if you will. The team enjoyed this. Um, I also had to do some retraining. There were, there were staff members who raised their hand and said, I think I'm not, I'm not quite prepared for this. Uh, I actually think I can be highly valuable in this very niche role. I think I can do amazingly well in that. Let me go narrow this down. In fact, I was doing too many things. I don't like that. I kind of love what you put as a vision. I want to go narrow myself and be the world's expert in this. And sure enough, we found um, with a little bit of retraining, we could actually uh, you know, get people to adopt this and absorb this in a big way. But change management was a big part of it and still is. Right. Still, while we're adopting, we're, you know, we're adapting, we're evolving, we're changing, uh, we've got to continue to do that as, as a team. But that's a great question. Yeah, I we're really, I, I was listening literally on the edge of my seat because... I think that um, so many things what you said were super interesting to me. Number one, you kind of drew from, you have done this before with mixed success and you kind of learn from those, you know, successes and failures. And then also, you know, we didn't dive too into the weeds, but you really talked a lot about how the different individuals had that, um, you didn't say this, but I, I, I heard it at, at, um, and, and also for some reason I talk with my hands and then for those that are watching a little thumbs up, just came up so. hey, I'm uh, us. <laughs> a little, uh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> that, that tends to happen to me from time to time, but, um, you know, individuals had to have felt both agency and safety to be able to do what you said they did, which is say, Hey, I think maybe my job would be more impactful and maybe I'd be better suited if I did this new thing. And so that that's hard, like way simpler said than done, right? People have to feel that there's space to do that and that they're safe to say, hey, Absolutely. I want to change my job. I want to change my accountability. And so that's super interesting that you were able to Very get well the said, Debbie. Exactly. That's right. So as a, as a leader, that responsibility falls on you to make sure that you create that safe environment for people to have the conversation with you. Um, and some people may just opt out. They might say, I don't know if this is for me, right? I was very impactful. 
uh, at the time when, you know, I was the one man army doing everything. And now, you know, I'm, I'm being told to go to this, you know, a, a different, different role in the organization. Maybe this is not for me. And what I would do in a case like that is, and again, it was an open discussion and have one-on-ones with team members. I would literally ask, reflect that question back on them. So tell me, what are you nervous about? What is it that you're thinking? And as they talk, it back towards me, it reflected on me. In fact, what it turned out was that their, you know, fears were completely unfounded. Uh, there was incredible value for still, you know, one person armies. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a company where, again, we give people a lot of leeway to make the biggest impact they possibly want to make in the company. So then I convinced them to say, okay, well, then let's adapt your role to this other group, right? Instead of you thinking of yourself as a part of core, maybe you belong on those specialist teams. The Let's put you on the life sciences team or the diagnostic clinical team. Or, hey, would you like to go kick off our data team? You know, they're, they're doing something on their own. They're learning and that marketplace is just emerging. Would you like to join an emerging team there? Uh, I started giving people options and they loved that. And these were people with domain expertise that worked with the founders before for a while. So I valued their knowledge, right? They're bringing a lot to the table. In some cases, it may not work out, but I want to make sure they ask the right questions, I'm answered it the right way, and then they are comfortable enough to say, oh yeah, Krishna, I can see myself transforming. Right. Maybe not, I'm going to I'm gonna check out. That, yeah, that's, that's that. Yeah, I, I love that part of the story because it's important, right? If you make all these changes and, the people don't show up, then you've not succeeded. <laughs> That's right. And as I told you brilliantly, you know, when I did this a decade ago, a decade and a half ago, I knew the answer. I came right. in and I imposed all this. And to my complete shock, I started bleeding my best talent. Then I realized, oh my God, what did I do wrong here? And I realized people haven't bought into the vision because they didn't understand the value. I didn't, you know, sell them on the value. I didn't bring them into, you know, uh, the, the camp, camp, if you will. So right. I was on right. Yeah. Right. that experience. Absolutely. So I do, I, we have, we have to t- time to dig in a little bit to one last question. And so we talked about some of the challenges from past experience, from this current experience, but, uh, what, what do you think, um, you know, were some of the, like one or two of your biggest challenges that you faced this time around and how did you tackle those? Absolutely. So I'd say the, the biggest challenges were figuring out a proper release cadence for that common core team. So the okay. common core team spits out value and products or modules, if you will. They, they, their customers are really in, on the inside, right? So they're supplying these product teams that are facing customers with common elements, common packages, uh, common ways of doing things there. Um, the expectation, which I realized a little bit later, was that they would be generating uh, content more frequently than the other teams. So as, just as an example, let's say a team um, you know, in, a, in the life sciences domain, let's say was shipping product on a quarterly basis, right? So their regular cadence, agile scrum cadence is quarterly. They're expecting core items to pop up early during that release cycle. So they wanted the first month. Um, So what I found is that one of the challenges I faced very quickly was the expectation from core was that they would do much faster releases. Um, Now, the good news was that uh, as I built out that team, I knew from my past experience that I need to build a a full stack team, a team that had the capability to deliver uh, things faster because I made sure that they have seamless CI/CD pipelines. So those are, you know, open, solid, quick, well-tested, secure pipelines. So we did not only quality testing, but also security testing. Built that out so that on a monthly basis, they can spit out, you know, more product or whatever cadence the, the product teams wanted, really. Um, so that took a bit of that dance choreographing that 
the cadence between a common core versus the, the product, the customer facing product teams was, um, I think that was one area that I found was challenging um, with Agile Scrum. A uh, second one I would say is making sure that along the lines of the silos being broken, what was natural now was that the uh, customer facing product teams, three in this case, right, for life sciences, diagnostic, and data, uh, were naturally speaking to the core teams on a continuous basis. That was my vision. My first thing was we got to break down those silos. This is where we started the conversation. We can kind of, you know, almost end on this note, but I did see the silos breaking very easily, very naturally. This was something very natural for the customer-facing product teams to check continuously on core, the product managers to be in sync, the engineering needs to talk constantly. And I can tell you the amount of learnings, uh, the cross-cultural impact, um, you know, amount of innovation that I believe that the team has brought in the past year, year and a half has been amazing. And not coincidence, it is by design and by plan, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I... I, I wish we had more time because I really have enjoyed every second of this conversation and really um, valued your experience both at, I, I love how we talked about the theoretical level, at the practical level, learning from learning from iterating on this process over a decade or more. <laughs> so we, um, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, thank you so much, Krishna. This has been a pleasure. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie, for having me on. It was it was fun likewise i really enjoyed this thank you absolutely hey everyone if you've enjoyed today's episode remember to subscribe give it five stars and more importantly share it with someone that you think will benefit from listening and remember as always think about the one to two key takeaways that you can apply today to help you and your team achieve your goals until then keep iterating